Heavenly Father, we bless your name today and we say that we stand, we live, we move, we breathe, we have our being, we understand and we love your truth because of Jesus Christ, your only Son, who died to purchase every one of these things for every one of your own, not just us, but every saint who confesses that you are their only hope. And now according to these two songs that we've just sang, I pray that you would be the center of this service, of this message, and of our hearts. And I pray that as we hold ourselves and our world, as we hold our callings, our future, as we hold our practical day-to-day decisions and walk accountable to your glory, that you would write within the heart of every believer an intrinsic vision for reformation, to reform every aspect of our lives to the glory of your Son so that sanctification might reveal to greater degree the image of Jesus Christ shining, shining from your church. Lord, let this message produce something to that effect, and if it does, it will be the work of the Spirit using an unlikely vessel like myself speaking to unlikely vessels, those who listen, made likely only by the sovereign working of the power of God. And we trust that power, and we take refuge in it today, because if that power can raise the Son of God from the dead, then it can certainly quicken our mortal bodies, and it can certainly transform our minds. So we pray that any ability or confidence misplaced in the things of man would be set aside, and our Lord and our Savior would be featured and foremost in our minds, even as I pray it would be in this message, even as it is certainly in your word, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to turn with me, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 29. Our primary text this morning will be Nehemiah 9. We've read a couple verses from there already, but... In a few moments, I'd like to read from Jeremiah, so I'll have you turn there in anticipation of that. I'll give you a title of this morning's message. It's A Reformation Vision, simply titled A Reformation Vision. It's a vision for reformation that we see in Scripture. There have been reformations, things that we label reformational in church history since the Apostolic Age, which would be the time of the New Testament and its final words written. So for about 2,000 years, the church has continued from the apostolic age with a closed canon, that is, the Bible is complete. There have not been, been any apostles and prophets in the sense that they were commissioned by the Holy Spirit to author Scripture since then. But God's sufficient written word has been enough to be an agent of preservation for us, His people, and a remnant fellowships and celebrates Jesus Christ this morning in every true and confessing church where the bride of Jesus Christ gathers, each one representing the work of Christ in their heart, being regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, we exist because the Word of God, as one means that the Spirit employs, has been sufficient to be the unifying factor to hold together His church for now some 2,000 years. But that does not mean mean that we stand, that we don't stand in need 
of a reformation. When we use the term reformation, it simply means a reordering of any area of life that stands outside of where it should. It should stand in attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. But if there's any aspect of our culture and Christianity in our life and lifestyle as believers, as a church, as a fellowshipping community of Jesus Christ in the earth today, if there's any aspect that stands outside of the attention it ought to have for the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand in need of a reformation. But by that strict definition, we are always in need of a reformation. But I'd like to extend a little further the charge of this message and the vision of this message by venturing that we of the church, of those in the church age, probably stand in more need of reformation than we have in previous eras. I'm going to try to document that case, not from the reformation that we think of in church history in the 1500s and Luther and Calvin and Owen and uh, Zwingli and Bunyan and those influenced by them that brought even the reformational ideas of the gospel of Jesus Christ central to all of life overseas and were even formulative in the founding of this very nation with the pilgrims, the separatists and the Puritans and so on. That was an amazing movement, rightly called a reformation. But I prefer not to, in this message, use that reformation as the standard, as the benchmark for the vision of what we need today. Instead, I'd love to go back to Scripture and see if there were times analogous to ours where the church stood in need of a reordering according to its principles and principled purpose and then find there our standard for holding ourselves, our fellowship, our culture, our lifestyle accountable to those truths. So this message is an attempt to do that. The point number one of our reformational vision, influential figures and factors, people, ideas, and circumstances that contributed to the reformation in Nehemiah chapter 9. Number one, influential figures, factors, figures and factors, people, circumstances, and ideas that contributed to this biblical reformation. In Jeremiah chapter 29, some of you may have a very famous verse from that passage memorized. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for future, to give you a future and a hope. That comes from verse 11. I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil here in the ESV to give you a future and a hope. When you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I would like to rewind Perhaps our familiarity with this verse to 29, verse 1. Let's read the context which this verse that we just read, or these verses that we just read that are very familiar to us, is given. Jeremiah says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. There we have the context. This letter, this admonition, this charge, and this promise, I know the future that I have for you. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for wholeness, not for evil. 
this vision, this admonition, this charge, this hope and promise were delivered by Jeremiah during a time where God's people needed reformation to the nth degree. The reason they were going into exile is because they had left the Lord, worshipped idols, and even upon repeated generational word of God preaching and warnings from the prophets over and over and over again. They continued to commit the same sins and fell into apostasy, fell away from their Lord until such time as their culture was steeped with the effects of their reprobate living. And now they had received the judgment of God in exile. They would leave the land, the promised land. And many of them, if not most, would now be under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. They would go into this pagan nation as exiles, yet they weren't without hope. There was still hope that the reforming elements of the glory of the word of God could even visit them while they were under captivity to a foreign nation whose foreign gods and foreign kingdoms was absolutely repressive and tyrannical, oppressive. It would feel as if you were claustrophobic spiritually. You could get in trouble for voicing your faith. You would be under constant watch over underneath this heading of government. These were certainly circumstances that you would think in the natural would render the fellowshipping community, God's people, totally inept, totally inept and totally non-influential. Unable to even get their hearts to a place of confidence in their Lord again. After all, what prophet could preach to them under these conditions without being imprisoned or impaled by the sword of their oppressor? After all, how could they even read the word when they couldn't carry it with them? Certainly, the words of the prophets, their only hope for the future would probably drift into obscurity. And they themselves would be chained together and led in long lines of captives away from their familiar surroundings, the promised land, even their neighbors who they used to perhaps in small pockets fellowship with and share something of the truth of their culture together. But now none of that would be available to them, at least they would think, I'm sure, and their dejected depression as they leave their familiar surroundings and head into the captivity of Babylon. Nevertheless, the words of Jeremiah commission a letter and send it with them, and he gives them instructions. He says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And these are the special instructions. A reformation is still possible under the tyranny of a foreign oppressor. And these are the things that they were to do. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Verse 6, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord God on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord. When the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. And then the familiar words. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. There are a few key figures that I wanted to highlight in studying, documenting this 
biblical reformation that is within the pages of scripture, an intertextual reformation. Who were the influential figures and factors? Well, Jeremiah certainly would have been key. This message that Jeremiah gave, hey, go there with hope that first of all, it's finite. Secondly, you will be an influence. Thirdly, you are to prosper and thrive. And fourthly, in the end, I will bring you back to the land that I have commissioned you dwell in, and that I have unfulfilled purposes for, and I will do these things. The Lord declared it. Jeremiah affected a number of people, not the least of which would have been Daniel. Daniel, as a teenager, no doubt, is it seems our best attempt to approximate his age is probably around 16. Certainly a tender age by today's standards. You wouldn't expect him to be the man of God that he was. But the words of Jeremiah the prophet, as Daniel himself attests in, to in his book, were enough to inspire him to be exemplary in the culture that was a tyranny over him. Daniel chapter 1, here's the first impasse that Daniel comes to with his foreign government. Verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God would give Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of a number of leaders. Not that his tenure there in these oppressive governments, in these multiple empires, would not be without trial. Indeed, they were varied and, and very dramatic. But Daniel received enough influence of the Holy Spirit and enough to go on from the prophet Jeremiah and the word of God that he knew and others to carry him through that time and to not just survive, but to be a remarkable influence. In Daniel chapter 9, this is just a brief overview. Daniel says in verse 2, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, speaking of Darius's reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, how many years must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem? Namely, 70 years. So we see the influence of Jeremiah even on Daniel later in life as he realizes that the countdown is getting closer. And he has faith that his people will indeed return. Remember, Daniel had three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylon names. These men also were very similar to Daniel. They were influential figures in this intertextual reformation. When they were put to the test, when they came to an impasse with the tyrannical powers, they refused to bow to the gods of that regime and instead said, even if you kill us, that's all right. God is powerful enough to redeem us or to save our lives if he so chooses. We will not bow before your statue and worship its golden image. And you remember they were thrown into the fiery furnace. God did, God did intervene on their behalf. And so we can imagine the influence that that had on the kingdoms of the time. And we can read it within the pages. Suddenly, kings of foreign oppressors who had just taken captive God's people, captured the vessels of the temple and brought them all the way to their capital, began to confess that the king or the, the Lord of the Israelites was the one true God. He was the sovereign almighty and they admitted that their gods were lesser. How did this happen? Did a majority of confessing true Hebrew believers ever show itself in 
Babylon or Persia, under Darius, under Belshazzar, under uh, Nebuchadnezzar. No, it never did. In fact, we're only told of about four or five, just a handful. Yet because they believed and stood on a few things, these influential figures actually inspired kings of foreign nations who had just conquered them as a people to now bow before the authority of their God. Unbelievable. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah were two influential figures as well. We read of them in Nehemiah 1 verse 11. It's interesting to follow the story of some of these Hebrew men who were placed in positions by God's sovereign favor of influence in this kingdom. For Ezra, he was serving in the royal court. He was a cupbearer. He would have constant interaction with the king. He would be interacting with the, his favor and influence on a daily basis, and we see the moment of God's choosing when that became very important. And then Ezra became a leader. I'm sorry, Nehemiah became a leader among God's people. And then in Ezra 7, verse 6, we see that he was a scribe. He was skilled in the law. And even though this was a time where the Hebrews were languishing in their fidelity to the truth, to the law of God, and to the godly traditions and culture that God had given and instituted among them, nevertheless, Ezra was different. He was a scribe. He was skilled in the law. And he also had favor with kings and people in authority. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one. They're similar. They're a chronicle and a record. They're public documents going back and forth that didn't exist in a private corner somewhere. Instead, they were written by officials who believed in God, who were commissioned by kings to go and to return to the land and to set up, set up once again a godly culture, a godly temple, return the vessels to the rightful place, and begin the reformation of God's covenant people on this earth. Unbelievable. Just a handful. Just a few. There were a few more. Actually, a lot more. These weren't the leaders. They were the ordinary people. But if you read in Ezra chapter 2 and chapter 8, there's long lists of ordinary people. These were the ones, like perhaps like you and me, if we had been found in that hour, if we had confessed faith and the hope of the Messiah, if our hearts were true, to who we were and called to be. And if we had kept in our heart the words of Jeremiah to don't lose hope, to be encouraged, to prosper and to thrive, and to trust that even though we are few and we are conquered, we can be an influence in the society. So there were ordinary people that joined Ezra and Nehemiah in this great endeavor, and they returned to the land. These were the influential figures. Jeremiah and company, Daniel and company, Ezra and Nehemiah and company. Now let's go to move to influential factors. I've asked myself this question a number of times, and I've narrowed it down to three statements. If you have a copy of notes and back, they're listed there. But I wonder what was the influential aspects of the godly character of these type of leaders. In other words, what did Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi... What did these men have in common that rendered them an influential figure in this Reformation era? Well, perhaps all of their characteristics could be subsumed under three categories. First, a selfless, magisterial wisdom. That word magisterial refers to, ma or the root there is magistrate, one who's a leader, one who's a lawgiver, a judge who has sagacity, sound jurisprudence, 
They think well. They apply the word well. They're well equipped under pressure to adjudicate even court cases, to take the principles of God's word which never change, and to figure out what the right thing to do is in changing everyday circumstances. This is the kind of influence that the men had that I listed in previously. They had a magisterial wisdom, but not a sort of self-confident egotism. They also had a selflessness about them, a true humility of heart, where they were confident and unwavering in what they believed. They were also very honoring to the king of that time, never at the expense of the glory of God, but always looking for opportunities to see what bridges they could build with the men of the hour. They had selfless, magisterial wisdom. Understand some of these words are might be new and a little uh, thick in meaning there, but isn't that a great way to describe someone like Daniel, who would come to an impasse with the rulers of the day saying, okay, and I assume it was the dietary laws in the book of Moses that forbade him to take the king's diet of rich meat and wine. So he's there. He, he can't go any farther without asserting the principle. But what does he do? He doesn't do it in egotism. He does it in a way that is selfless. And, and he actually has the best interests of those who are in charge of him, though they are pagans and idol worshipers, in mind. And he says, I'll wager you a test. What about when Shadrach, and Meshach, Shadrach Meshach, and Abednego, when they came to an impasse, or the law of their God refused to let them obey the law of their king. What did they do? Well, they stood, they didn't bow down. Yet with humility and boldness, they proclaimed their case and their resolve before the king. And there they were, let, bound, hand and foot, and thrown into the fiery furnace. When they came to that impasse, they evidenced this kind of selfless, magisterial wisdom. And God guided them through. And each time he did miracles... Same with Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel knew that Darius couldn't go against his own decree. He knew that the law of the Medes and the Persians was over the king. He didn't try to convince and use some sort of sophisticated lawyer language to get the king, based on the friendship capital that he had with him, to change his mind. No, he simply submitted and said, I understand. And when he came to that impasse, he continued to pray to his God and get thrown to the lions, but God saved him. So that's one aspect of influential figures in a Reformation era. There's selfless, magisterial wisdom. And there's also a cardinal allegiance to the Word of God. That is a primary allegiance to the Word of God. And this is an overlapping concept. But you see it when Daniel exhibited that kind of resolve right at the beginning in his diet. You see it again in the allegiance to the Word of God that his friends showed at the fiery furnace. And then the verse that I think sums it up so well Happened, or happens to be written right before the, the lion's den incident, and it's in Daniel 6, verse 5. When these men said, then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we, can, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. This man lived so above reproach that his only Achilles heel in the minds of the pagan men around him was he had a primary, a cardinal allegiance 
to the word of God. We have to make following God illegal to get Daniel to break the law. Otherwise, he'll never do it. He's a man of integrity, impeccable character. He's humble. He's selfless. He exists only to benefit the king and those around him as far as he possibly can. But we know where he can't go any farther. And that's in the law of his God. We'll make it illegal to pray. And that's exactly what they did. And again, it forced the impasse. Yet that brings up point number three. Three influential factors that attended the way of Jeremiah, Daniel, and others like Ezra and Nehemiah. They had this selfless magisterial wisdom. They had a cardinal allegiance to the word of God. But thirdly, there was sovereign intervention. Sovereign intervention. I don't even need to tell you what they were. We see it time and again, the most dramatic Bible stories, perhaps in nearly all of its pages, occurred during this time when God's people were more oppressed than ever, when they were under exile. Think of this one example. Think of the sovereign intervention in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, who exalted himself above the knowledge of God, declared himself to be God. And then the seven-year trial, the seven-year proof that he was not, that God succumbed him to. He lost his reason, ate grass like a beast, and had to be no doubt sequestered in some corner of the kingdom until such time as he received his mind back to him. And when he did, what did the sane man confess? There is no God but the God of Israel. If that wasn't a sovereign intervention, you won't find one. Now, sovereign intervention, how do we know or how can we be sure that God will intervene in a sovereign way? Well, we can never be sure and as far as the miracles are concerned, that I this situation warrants a huge moving of heaven and earth, intervention of our God. However, if you put yourself in God's shoes, would you be willing to bless something that didn't first manifest a cardinal allegiance to the word of God and a selfless wisdom? In other words, I think that sovereign intervention is predicated on the kind of influence that the leaders and the people had in following God's word at that time. Many of us in the church today are praying for divine intervention. Wake us up, O oh God. Move heaven and earth, O oh God. Spark a revival, light a fire, kindle your church. But how many of us are willing to have and to maintain and to fight for and to evidence the prerequisite wisdom and the prerequisite cardinal, primary foundational allegiance to the word of God. God could intervene on Daniel's behalf and his name and his name only would be glorified. Daniel wouldn't name a ministry after himself and then build on that moment and write 10 books. Not that any of these things are wrong in and of themselves. It's just more typical of what we do these days. Daniel could write, you know, seven steps to calling down fire from heaven or seven steps to bring a magistrate to his knees. You know, and he can become famous and do preaching tours and conferences and so on. No. When Daniel got the interpretation of a dream and the accolades from the king came to him, he said, I can't receive these, or if I do, please know, it is not me, but the Lord who gave me the interpretation. That's why we can see when Daniel was elevated as king and then he was demoted in an hour, it didn't so much matter because he had tied his allegiance not to his own success, only that the Lord might be glorified. Daniel was promoted, but Daniel was also tested. And because Daniel and others like him existed to glorify the Lord, 
and their primary allegiance was to his word and not their own reputation, God was pleased to intervene in sovereign ways, knowing that his servants would only echo his glory and wouldn't steal it for themselves. Those are a few of the influential figures and factors that precede the Nehemiah 9 Reformation. Number two, reclaiming the touchstones of faith. As we study and document what it takes to see a Reformation, it not only takes the kind of character that we just mentioned, not in a majority, but at least in some influence somewhere within the confessing church of Jesus Christ, but it also will entail whatever this principle means, reclaiming the touchstones of faith. If you go through the story of this time of exile and reformation, you can follow the temple vessels, and it's very interesting. The temple vessels appear in the beginning of Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2. They leave Jerusalem, and they're packed up, and they're sent to Babylon, and they become war trophies. They show up in the feast in Daniel chapter 5 verse 2 that Belshazzar has, where they're drinking out of them in a drunken celebration. The vessels again show up. Now, these are a touchstone of faith for the Israelites at that time. They're symbolic, they're representative. Oftentimes, the Lord intervened according to the touchstones of faith. So you could expect lightning from heaven to come, not just figuratively. If you were to have a drunken orgy and use God's vessels in that party, what happened when Belshazzar was so bold, so audacious, so blasphemous to take those vessels and to use them to entertain his drunken guests? Well, they weren't into that party very far when suddenly everyone who was completely under the influence of alcohol was sobered in a moment as a giant hand reached out of heaven and carved on the stone wall of that party with a message that they couldn't interpret. And who came to the fore to bring its message, to bring its meaning? None other than Daniel. Here he is promoted again, or about to be. When he comes there, there's not, there, there's, you could hear a pin drop, as I imagine, and there are no goblets and vessels of the house of our Lord raised to pagan lips. No jaws are agape and eyes are wide as they stare at the wall and wonder its meaning. They soon find out its judgment, its doom. It's destruction. And the walls that mankind has probably never equaled are actually impregnated by this force that no one expected. And underneath, likely through the tunnels that they got their water from, the invading army of Persia takes over this great city in an hour. And this was the time when the touchstones of faith showed the power of God. If you mess with God and His presence and His glory, in a way that would bless me, Fim, and besmirch his name. It's only a matter of time before judgment comes swift and decisive to thwart that very thing. And this is exactly what happened. As you follow the story of the vessels and Cyrus' decree, now God has favor on them, just as he has prophesied Cyrus by name, by his prophets of old, uh, in the past, now in Ezra chapter 1, verse 7, Cyrus issues a decree. Now it is time I give the blessing for God's people to return to build their temple, to reinstitute their worship, and I'm sending the golden vessels, the vessels and instruments of worship with them. Ezra 6, verse 5, Darius reiterates the decree and they show up again. And then in Nehemiah 10, 39, 
after the temple worship is reinstituted, after the Reformation, the vessels are there in the appropriate place used for the glory of the Lord. God's people, by the grace and sovereignty of God, had reclaimed the touchstones of their faith. What are the touchstones of our faith? Jesus Christ is our chief cornerstone. The one by which we build our lives upon. And the one who crushes any dissenter into powder. Jesus Christ is the touchstone of our faith. The unadulterated gospel needs to be reclaimed among the confessing people of God. And when this happens, it will be part and parcel to a reformation. In previous reformations, even in church history, this has taken manifest form in the reprinting of the Bible itself. For ages, the Bible was foreign to the common man. He had to take the priest's word for it. He didn't understand the Latin. He couldn't read it himself. And it was confessors and priests and mediators of man who he had to trust to give him this word. Well, a reformation took place part and parcel when the word of God was returned to the hand and to the heart of the commoner, to the ordinary man during the time of the Reformation in the 1500s. What of today? It strikes me that we are far more worthy of judgment and doom because we have a Bible at our fingertips wherever we go. If you're like me, you've got one on your phone, you've got one on your desk, and in case you forget one, you leave one at work or at church. I've got one in the prayer cabin. I've got one in my study. Bibles are everywhere. It's not enough to have the Word of God and the touchstones of faith in hand. You must have them in your heart. When the Word of God and the touchstones of faith, the unadulterated gospel and the written Word of God makes its way into the heart, the fiber, and the soul, the culture of God's people once again, we will be on our way to a reformation. It will happen when we reclaim the touchstones of faith and stop taking for granted the Word of God that we now hold in our hands where in the past, just on a memory and a prayer, His people have existed for ages and sometimes centuries. When the lost book of the law was found buried in the wall of the ruins and then it was brought out, people would pause for hours, for days, confess and read. They would call a worship service. Why? Because they realized that the true treasure, the center of their existence, the purpose for their life, the application was withstanding. They had taken for granted, not just taken for granted, there was a famine for the literal written word of the Lord. And today, there's a famine for the written word of the Lord in the hearts and the practice of his people. But when we are aware of this, and when God begins to work in a reformational wave among his people, we will call attention to the touchstones of our faith and we will put aside the plow. We will put aside our other priorities and the things that we've prostituted uh, for, that, that we've pursued and, and at the expense of the glory of God and applied our affections towards. We, we'll put them aside and we'll repent. And we will begin to reorder our life and our worship services, and our whole well-being, and the vision for our society, and our family, and our church, and our business, and our work, and everything else you can possibly imagine, we will pause, and we will replace the touchstones of our faith to the center of our existence. Number three, as we document this reformation, there were influential figures and factors. There was a reclaiming of the touchstones of faith. Number three, there was a confessing of multi-generational sin. This brings us to our primary text this morning in Nehemiah chapter 9. If you would turn there with me. At the close of this message, we will 
call for a fast here among us today or this next week. After we take communion, I would hope that many of us are called and take up this charge to fast and do something similar to the heart that we see here. This is in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. They assembled, there was fasting, there was sackcloth, earth on their heads, these outward and inward expressions of humility, penitence, brokenness, repentance, and they separated themselves from the foreigners. That would be those who would influence them otherwise. And they realigned themselves and their fellowship according to the source of their very life and their very breath in relationship to Almighty God. And they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. There was a confessing of multi-generational sins. These people under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah during this time of reformation, they knew more perhaps than our average altar call we offer in today's evangelical services revealed. They knew that yes, they must repent in their own heart for their waywardness of soul and cry out for repentance. But they also took it a step further. They repented for the sins multi-generationally of their fathers. They repented as a culture, as a people group. They took it a step farther. It was a bigger picture of repentance. They were going to change more than their private life. They were going to change their public affairs, their interaction. Their vision for their nation was going to change and conform. At the end of their confession and their worship service, at the end of this chapter, Nehemiah 9, we see again reiterated the heart of their confession as the people cry out in 936, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its goods. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you set over us because of our sins. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. You know what these people are doing right now? They're writhing in anguish, mental anguish, because the oppression of taxes, taxes, slavery, tyranny, government. We are willing to complain about government. You know, everybody has different statistics that come into their mind. The tyranny of the taxation that has become a reality in our experience in this nation today. I'm told 40 to 50% in different ways and means in the course of our life of our income is confiscated by, yes, a tyrannical, yes, an unjust government. You just asserted a standard there, preacher, I know. I'm getting it from Samuel. He said, if you want a king to rule over you, know that he will make you a slave. He will require more than 10% 
of your giving. You require more than God himself. And if that's not the definition of slavery, you are not holding your standards of freedom according to Scripture. So now here we are, four and five-fold over, requiring more in our power structures than God himself requires in his kingdom. And if that's not the definition of slavery, I don't know what is, and I can probably get nearly every working-class citizen to yell a hearty amen. Yes, we, along with these people, are in slavery. But do we understand why? Do we understand why? Do we care? And have we confessed? They said, we are slaves this day because we believe in the promises of a secular, wicked, pagan society. Because we lusted after the goods and the life and the lifestyles, the luxury and the freebies of those around. This is why we are slaves this day. We put ourselves under this. It is our fault. It is not the fault of our oppressors. We are slaves this day in the land which you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of what? Our sins. They rule over our bodies. It was the ancient version of being scanned by the TSA agents in their airports of their day. It was their version of drones overhead. It was their version of a rest in peace sign over you own your body. It was their version of tyranny having totally overrunning privacy of individuals and no longer were they the stewards of their person or their property, but they had subjugated. But all of that had been deferred to the government and the rulers of the day had subjected them to utter slavery. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. They had their version of the FDA. They had their version of the USDA. They had their version of so-called security. That You know, everything, I'm using political examples to show you the equivalence here. And these people do it as they please. And we are in great distress. Now notice verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They listed the grievance. They owned their sin. They confessed it, and they reformed. They confessed that multi-generational sin was the reason that they were slaves. They didn't blame anybody but themselves and their backslidden state for the situation that they found themselves in at this time. If we are to reform today, it won't come from a revolutionary movement rising out of a disaffected underclass or whatever. It won't come when enough people are finally sick of it and they turn on the government with arms, although that's happened in history and could very well happen again. The only successful reformation will happen when people realize their sin is responsible for their slavery and then become slaves to Christ instead of slaves to sin. And this involves a, a confession that is more than just my heart before the Lord, although it is that. It's the generational sin. It's coming to the Lord and confessing in sackcloth, fasting and ashes that we have separated ourselves now from the influences that were the bane and our Achilles heel, and now we stand and confess our sins and the iniquities 
of our fathers. Number four, reestablishing according to the prepotency of the law of God. I'm introducing a new word for you. Well, maybe some of you know it. Reestablishing according to the prepotency of the law of God. This is a great word to describe the principled structure of this new society that was growing, that was being birthed, that was putting down roots at this time in Nehemiah. There was a, an honor and a deference and an orientation of the law of God and where it fits in their lives, in their confession, and in their society. It was prepotent. That means it was prior to the things that would come as a result of the law of God being in its appropriate place. These days, as we read in theology, there is a clear understanding that we affirm here, I believe, of the role of the law of God in our affairs even after the new covenant. There's three purposes that the law fulfills. One is civic. That is, God does ordain His moral authority as the Word defines immutably and God's moral standards as the necessary interposition in the affairs of man to restrain the course of evil. That's language from some of the framers of our Constitution and our government. They understood that God had a moral order, that the civic realm, that the government was called, of course it had to be according to biblical jurisdiction, to uphold, to be a necessary check and a balance, and to slow down what would otherwise be the self-destructive course of sin. There's other purposes that the law serves. Two others. Second is a teacher. Paul said, if it wasn't for the law, I would not have known my sin. When we preach the gospel, the law ought to be first and foremost. It ought to be prepotent in our message. The law, the righteousness that God requires, reveals to us that we have fallen short in our need for a perfect Savior. One who fulfilled the law in perfection and whose substitutionary death is our only possible means for salvation. And then thirdly, didactic, or a vision for sanctification. We see the law of God now is something that gives us joy to follow as we love our neighbor as ourselves, as we follow God's moral standards as a redeemed Christian. It's part of our sanctification process. So these are the three accurate and I believe correct uses of the law for all time. Civic, pedagogical, that means teaching, especially as to children, and didactic, that means teaching, especially as to that which gives life and joy and vision and purpose. So, the prepotency of the law of God must return the law of God to its rightful place in order for a reformation to take foothold and to produce fruit. Nehemiah 9.3 And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood all of these men, and they cried with loud voices to the Lord, their God. When they found the lost book of the law, or at least they returned it to central to their worship, for a quarter of the day they returned it to its prepotency. That means the prior power or the force and foundation that's necessary for the rest of their society to thrive. It was the law of God that instructed them not to fraternize with their pagan neighbors in a way that would compromise their faith. Because they had left the law of the Lord, either in their mind or in their experience, quite literally, they had done exactly that. 
because they had left the law of the Lord, they stopped stewarding their possessions well. And they deferred the responsibility to kings and people over them and so on. But when they returned the law of the Lord to the rightful place, this reformation vision was possible. They reestablished according to the prepotency of the law of the Lord. I'm going to read you a uh, blog post. This isn't me. This is a uh, one that I came across this week. I, I hesitate. I won't give you the fellow's name because I respect him a lot. And I agree with his desire. But according to Nehemiah, we might take a slight issue with his vision here for how to bring it about. I just stored this in my phone. I thought it was instructive. Uh, This man writes, In the corporate psychology of every city, there is a threshold of non-ignorability. So he's from Nashville. He says, Here in Nashville, many things can be ignored. But the Titans, we all know who they are, NFL team, they cannot be ignored. Country music, we all know what that is, it cannot be ignored. Vanderbilt University cannot be ignored. But the gospel remains ignorable. Up to this point, I would have to agree, in most cities, that would that's going to be the case in America. The gospel remains ignorable. In the corporate, as he uses this language, psychology of the city, Is there a conscience that has worked its way in the culture of any major city that you can think of in America where they stop breaking laws because the gospel is not ignorable? Even if they themselves don't confess faith in Christ, there's some inner governor that prevents them from committing crime? No, it seems increasingly the opposite is true. While they have a conscience, it's increasingly seared. Why? Because the gospel remains to some degree ignorable. Now, again, this is speaking in social context. An organic, now this is his solution that he offers, his vision for hope. An organic, from below, non-big event strategy of church planting. Some churches small, some medium, some large, but churches with a clear message. I'm going to pause there and say, Amen. With a clear message, and here's where I pause, though, and might offer a critique based on what I've just learned from Nehemiah. A clear message of grace and a beautiful culture of grace. Churches of gospel plus safety plus time where sinners can rethink their lives without pressure. Churches where sinners can admit their needs without being humiliated. Churches where there are more and more stories of divine renewal and so on. I'm going to read that to you again. We need churches that have a message of grace, a beautiful culture of grace, gospel, safety, time. Without pressure, we can admit your needs without being humiliated. Now compare that to this. The 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled in fasting sackcloth with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law and the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worship. Do you see there may be a difference here? One vision trusts the prepotency, if you will, of grace, and the other vision recognizes the prepotency of law. If our cities have considered the gospel, or any society for that matter, ignorable, the law needs to be brought to bear, and the very thing they need is humiliation under it. We need sackcloth, we need fasting, we need dirt, as it were, on our heads. 
We need a bowing of the knee. We don't need indefinite, patient, loving coddling. Now, God has been long-suffering with me. He has been totally patient. And I feel an immense and intense obligation to be long-suffering and totally patient with any sinner. And this life is but a vapor. However, that should never mean denying the prepotency of the law of God. I am called like the rest of the figures of this Reformation to demonstrate a selfless magisterial wisdom, a cardinal allegiance to the Word of God. And only then would it be, an er- would, would it be a context in which I could be responsible or steward well a sovereign intervention of God. I assert that we need to reclaim a vision for the law to return to the pulpits of America, for it to give its scathing rebuke. If we don't see our sin in light of what the Bible declares it to be, that's the first message that we need to hear. I recently wrote a blog as well, and not to pin that man against myself, but only use the Word of God, I would charge you in comparing and contrasting a vision for reformation. That man I just read to his blog, he every bit as much as myself is desirous of a reformation. You know, there just may be some differing degrees of what it will look like. Now, if we see the law return to the pulpits, what will it look like? And what will be the difference? And what will we see change? I recently wrote a paper, and you can read it at length on the website later, but the title of which is, America is Not Deeply Divided. The title simply reflects this point. Although we like to think of America as totally divided in this last election as an example, nevertheless, it seems that we have more principles to to agree on than we have principles to differ. Psalm 19.10, I write in this post, tells us that the law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules, and fear of the Lord, they are to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. I'm hearing frequently from bystanders of current events, culture, and politics that Americans have never been more polarized in their opinions and so on. Now, if the church was applying the law of God with anything close to the comprehension, sobriety, affection, and confidence, and preeminence that David's writings exemplify, I might be inclined to agree. But we're not even, in most cases I feel, working on the disciplines necessary to do that, let alone coming up with some conclusions. I will list this man's name. He's come up in the media recently. Rick Warren recently came under fire for ambiguous responses to questions about homosexuality and sin. And this has happened over and over again. Supposed, you know, prominent, yes, very influential evangelical leaders have been interviewed time and again by a hostile media and have been very cautious in answering questions that deal directly with God's law. But if grace as we see prior, as prepotent and not the law of God, we may answer these in a very anemic fashion. Indeed, I feel that's what we are in danger of as a church. His response came under fire because it was ambiguous and so on. In response to this you know, question from the interview of homosexuality and sin, equally troubling to me, especially as it was not mentioned in the ensuing controversy, was the following quote. And this is Rick Warren. He says, Other people have other sources of authority or different readings of the Bible. What we need are the kind of conversations you and I are having right now 
non-inflammatory, non-flame-throwing, not saying you must be a bad person because you disagree with me. I'm here to tell you, if we disagree with the Word of God in Christ, we are nothing but a bad person. We are not here to promote ourselves. We're here to promote Christ. Let a more comprehensive analysis of Rick Warren's media interaction determine whether he deserves some benefit of the doubt here. Suffice it to say, these comments themselves stand worthy of careful scrutiny. Worldviews, by definition, are mutually exclusive. If you imply the Word of God is an authority over you and not necessarily an authority over everyone, you betray your adherence to the prevailing worldview of our time. Multiculturalism, this postmodern notion that there is no absolute truth. Now listen, fidelity to the, to the Bible. This goes for me. You can hold me accountable to the standard. I hope you do. And every gospel preacher, everyone who claims the name of Christ, fidelity to the, to the Bible demands we affirm the flame-throwing notion that rebellious insubordination to the authority of Almighty God can only be justly characterized as hell-deserving sin. God is not an affable life coach hoping you'll follow him on Twitter. If Warren's response is indicative of a predominant worldview among evangelicals, America is not deeply divided. I'm, I'm here to tell you without pointing too many fingers that I have been guilty of this thing. Too often I've been too quiet. Too often I have not asserted the truth. Too often I've moderated my response. And have I done so in every case at the expense of the glory of God? We must reestablish our message, our response, our lifestyle in accordance with the truth of the Word of God. Number five, I'm sorry, yes, asserting the primacy of blessing God. And this is, goes hand in hand. As this worship service unfolds on the stairs of this newly dedicated temple, the Levites command the people to follow the law and they instruct the people in songs and lead them in praise. They say, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve them and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. And do you see what is unfolding here? I could keep reading, but it would take a long time. This entire chapter, these 30-some verses, are given to blessing the Lord, recounting his deeds, telling what his power has accomplished, what his almighty hand has wrought. They asserted the primacy of blessing God. What is more important, blessing God or blessing others? And see, I think this is a problem for us as a church. And I don't think we'll reform until we get the order right. We bless God first, we bless others second. We never be a blessing to others. We never tell them what they want to hear as a so-called blessing to ease the message at the expense of truth. We're never called to do that. Think about the Ten Commandments. First it says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then later it instructs you how to act towards your neighbor. First it says, get the vertical right. Affirm me, you shall have no other gods before me. And secondly it says, live. Love your enemies. Live in right accord with one another. Yes, we ought to love each other, but never at the expense of blessing God. If the church continues to interact with a fallen world and tries to do so not offending them, blessing them, offering all these freebies, help, humanitarian aid, and so on, 
and that takes precedent over blessing God, we will not reform. We will simply give them what they want and more excuses to continue in their sin. Bless God first. Bless God first. And then and only then can we rightly discern whether we are blessing our neighbor. Christians ought to be the most selfless, ready for martyrdom people group in the world. They ought to be the most compassionate, loving, and giving. But it is never loving to deny the truth. And it is never loving to be party to deception. And it is never loving to let the wool remain over the eyes of the sinner. Never. Not for me, not for my neighbor. So let us bless God first. And then, and only then, will we be able to legitimately bless others. Instituting divine, definitive worship and education. We're talking about this documented reformation within the pages of Scripture. We've mentioned there was these influential figures and factors. There was a reclaiming of the touchstones of faith. There was a confession of multi-generational sin. There was a reestablishment of the prepotency of the law of God. There was an assertion of the primacy of blessing God. And now there is an institution of definitive worship and education. In other words, there is a vision here of what they should have remembered and should have taught to their children And now they are remembering and teaching. And that's why it is thorough. And that's why it is exemplary. And that's why it continues from these verses. In verse 8, you found his heart, speaking of Abraham, faithful before you, and made him the covenant to give to his offspring, to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the uh, Girgashite. And you've kept your promises for your righteousness. And notice the rest reads like the historical textbook that ought to have been ready in the pages of every teacher, every educator in this culture. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea, verse 9. Performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against their fathers and you made a name for yourself as as it is to this day. They were not teaching history. And they certainly were not teaching history with the correct worldview. Here we have an example of definitive worship and definitive education that the people of God should have been following for these 70 and of the prior centuries before. And now it's being reinstituted. And it's coming hand in hand with the reformational vision that is now coming and taking foothold in these people's lives. Listen to this. They are reclaiming the cultural centrality of the word of God. They are setting a course and a vision for the cultural centrality of the Word of God. Now, we sang a song, Jesus Be the Center, this morning. Christ-Centered Lives is the title of many books, many blogs, many prayers, many confessions these days. However, it's important that we study these passages of Scripture to get a vision for what Christ-centered cultures look like. What does culture mean? If you open up Webster's Dictionary, you might read something like this, and I believe this is accurate. A culture, according to Webster, our modern definitions, it's the integrated pattern of human knowledge. It's belief and behavior that depends upon the capacity for learning and transmitting knowledge to succeeding generations. So put two and two together. If we're going to have a culture that's centered on the Word of God, we have to reform not just our liturgical lifestyle, but our education as well. 
If we are called to conform and integrate the pattern of all knowledge, belief, and behavior of our culture as a believer, as believers, as a Christian culture, then we have to return this capacity for learning and transmitting the knowledge, the tools, and the implements to the hands of the convicted church. Otherwise, succeeding generations will not be like their faithful fathers. They will be like their apostate fathers and will repeat the sins of the last generation. It's considered a controversial topic to talk about home education and Christian education, but I submit to you it would not have been controversial in in the people group gathered here for this worship service. I think they understood that education and worship were one and the same. I think they understood the cultural essential of asserting the centrality of the Word of God so that the learning style and the learning mechanism reinforced and integrated the truth of God's Word and His law into the pattern of human knowledge, belief, and behavior. I don't think this Reformed society here would have suffered 24,000, especially if it was not mandatory. The education, we have an optional public school Babylonian education campaign for your children. For 20-some thousand instructional hours, we can uh, teach them in our culture. Sure, and then you'll give them names after your own gods. Sure, then you'll train them up to be influential in your tyrannical, godless, pagan ideals. Sure, then you'll institute confiscatory taxes and make them the tax collectors, and that will be their job and their sustenance such that their their economic means, their livelihood, their income, their principles, their vision, their priorities, their lifestyle, their family, everything will now be governed by paganism. What a great idea. No, this people would have never permitted such a thing. Like I said, sometimes when we talk this way, it's considered a controversial topic, even among the church. Could it be because we haven't quite reclaimed to the fullest degree the touchstones of our faith? Could it be because we haven't sufficiently confessed our multi-generational sins? If my applications are correct in this message, could it be because we haven't reestablished ourselves and the order of our lives according to the prepotency of the law of God? And could it be that we haven't asserted the primacy of blessing God? And because none of these things are part and parcel to our life and lifestyle, we are therefore not very influential as a factor and as leadership figures in our culture today. Bringing this message to a close, there's a great verse I'll turn you to, Nehemiah 9.38. After this service that took a half a day, if we take them at their word that they spent a quarter of it worshiping and a quarter of it reading the law, they ended it with signing a covenant. Because of all this, 9.38 in the book of Nehemiah, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then it says, all these names on the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor. The leaders were signing it right along with the commoners. The son, it says, you know, the, the lineage there. It's, it lists people to, all the way into verse 27. All of these signers of this renewed covenant. And these people were willing to put their name on paper. They were willing to make a public demonstration of their faith. They were willing to make a tangible, legitimate change in their life and lifestyle. They were willing to assert publicly the new order, the new reformation of what their society ought to look like. These documents were printed, written down, and published. 
They were the correspondence between tyrannical kings of the day and this new temple order and biblical nation that begun by just a handful being faithful to listen to the prophet Jeremiah. Let's listen to him today. We might find ourselves in exile, and this next year likely holds, I mean, you don't have to be much of a prophet at all to assume this next year will probably have increasing tyrannical elements about it. We'll likely not have a thriving economy, not have a miraculous change for the better in the areas that we care and feel. And the, but do we need to lose hope? No. We can actually, as a very small minority, as we follow the prescription of Scripture, be right there when a reformational vision is cast and implemented and successfully engaged in by a church that does not compromise. This morning, as we take communion in just a few moments, I would encourage you to see it as a reclamation of the touchstone of our faith. As we mentioned before, the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ gives us the ability to walk as strangers in this earth, to be a peculiar people, a nation, a people set apart to show forth the glory of our God. So as we take that bread and take that juice today, remember that it is the shed blood of Christ. Whereas the temple vessels and services like this gave great hope and morale and inspiration to the people, today we have the blood of the forever paschal lamb. We have the precious atoning blood of the Lord and God, Jesus Christ, become a man and crucified for our sins. We have a greater inspiration than all of history has known. Let's return to the touchstones of our faith and pray that, although it might seem in small measure, God would begin from the inside out to give us a vision for personal and corporate reformation. Let's transition in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work within us, Lord Jesus, the principles of your word and your unadulterated gospel so that we might shine more effectively in salt, Lord, more efficiently in our life. Lord, right now we remember and proclaim the ultimate act of redemption, the act that was in the heart of God the Father from all eternity, the act that secured our righteous passage to the fellowship of the eternal Godhead forever in perfect righteousness because of the shed blood of our perfect and slain Messiah, Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, freshly reminded of your death, we pray that you would equip us to fulfill our great commission, that you would make our footsteps strong and sure, and all the while that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, not to exalt ourselves, but to better shine for your glory and reflect our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us this touchstone of our faith even today, the saving work of Jesus Christ represented in these elements. We pray that as we partake in them, this moment would achieve its designed purpose and return to us, Lord Jesus, a singularity of heart and mind to advance the kingdom of our Lord and Savior and King. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.